You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Brendan Slocum was raised in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and holds a degree in musical education with a concentration in violin and viola from the University of North Carolina in Greensboro. For more than 20 years, he has been a public and private school music educator and has performed with orchestras throughout Northern Virginia, Maryland, and Washington, D.C. His first novel was The Violin Conspiracy. His new novel is a symphony of secrets. Thank you for joining me, Brennan. The pleasure is mine. Thank you for having me. This is such an interesting novel. And as I read it, you know, the the first thing I kind of thought was that, you know, we all hear this old uh, saw that music is the, the universal language, which I think is true so far as it goes. But I think importantly, in these days, music is a high bandwidth communication tool. Two notes can convey so much more than two words, two pictures. They can convey things that neither words nor pictures can convey. And I think that that's part of the essence and the power of this book is to explore that world. That is a really, really, really interesting way of putting it. I mean, I, I, I know that, but hearing you say that, it just may, it conjures, conjures up so many images. And so, wow, now I feel like my mind has been opened up. Thank you for doing that for me <laughs> this early in the afternoon. That's great. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. Um, uh, with, with this book in particular, uh, I, I really wanted to explore the the, uh, the the mental aspect, the artistic side of, of what musicians uh, experience in their creative process and you know what it is that we go through and musicians like Josephine and Freddie what they experience when when they are creating so yeah you're right on right on track we begin the book begins with uh Bernard Hendricks he's a musicologist investigating uh, a famous composer Freddie Delaney that you created from whole cloth he, <laughs> and did a wonderful job so uh, we begin the book and Bernard is like doing this academic research. So talk about the world of musicology, which is really fascinating. It's something that's obviously incredibly deep, incredibly detailed. People devote their lives to it. And many of us have not ever even understood at all what it is or how important it is to the creation of music. Absolutely. Um, I, I have to admit, I was one of those people you know, who who didn't know a great deal about musicology. I thought that it was just a person, okay, I'm going to go study how these people, you know, what their drum rhythms mean that they did in the jungle back in Brazil, you know, 100 years ago. I had no idea what, what a musicologist actually did. And there's, their, their job description is so vast, you know, it can be narrowed down to so many things. Um, but in the, in the case of, of Bern Hendricks, who's actually based on my late brother, uh, Kevin Bernard, um, he, Bern was, was just fascinated with, with Freddie Delaney as a composer, his life, his music, the way he composed, uh, just everything about him. And I, I don't even know if it would be fair to call him a musicologist. He may be more of a historian, uh, with, with a musical slant. You know, um, also, when you create uh, Freddie Delaney, he's also a character in the novel, not just studying the character. And you do a great job at mirroring these two plot lines, weaving them together. Was that a decision you made from the beginning of writing the book? Absolutely. Um, I, I knew that I wanted to do something in the past and something in the present. And uh, having these, these dual storylines, it was actually a lot of fun to do because you know, as as things developed in the past, I wanted the same pacing and and development in in the present. And uh, you know, so many things it, it happens really fast. You know, in in both sectors. So I was like, okay, this is actually going to be fun. I was challenging myself to keep up 
with uh, each one of them as as the stakes ramped up in the past. Or, OK, I got to ramp it up in the in the present now. And that, that was a lot of fun to do. And, and Freddie, I tell you, um, he's one of my favorite characters. He's actually one of my absolute favorite characters and not giving too much away. Uh, people will either love or hate Freddie, one of the two. I don't think there's any in between. I'm one of those people that absolutely love him. And um, I, I think when you, when people read the book, they they will understand why he's such a likable, likable guy. And um, as a composer, I based him very, very loosely off of uh, George Gershwin, very loosely, uh, just on some of the um, actions, not necessarily his personality, but but the actions that he undertook. So Freddie is one of my favorites. You know, one of the things that, that interested me about this book was that it is a super page turn. It's really compelling. I mean, I could not read it fast enough. But what I, what I, while I was reading it this fast, I'm thinking, you know, this is a book about musicians. Most of the people are like, you know, the exciting parts are studying manuscripts and discovering things or musicians creating things, you know, music out of whole cloth. It's not the stuff of a normal thriller yet by virtue of creating really great and compelling characters that we really want to find out what's going to happen to these people. You keep us completely involved is talk about plotting with characterization and art and music. Well, it, it's actually when I, when I start writing, everything is I, I do everything from a musical standpoint. You know, um, I, as a musician, I know what I like and I know what my friends who are musicians like. And and I, I, I get a sense of that world. So that that part is, you know, pretty basic for me. But when I'm when I'm writing, I want to be entertained. I want to I, I, I want to see a movie on the page. And I write as if I am watching a movie. And, you know, I, I like, you know, you said it was a page turner, which I really appreciate. I'm glad I'm glad you felt that way about it. Um, I just want to keep ramping up and ramping up and ramping up and making you want to turn the page and making you want to uh, see what happens next. Now, making you want to like these characters, like or hate them. Um, I want a reaction from everyone on these characters. You don't necessarily have to love each one, but I do want to get some type of reaction, just like everyday people that we know, you know, it, and every one of my characters will always have personality traits of people that I know. So it, I think that adds to the authenticity of, of the character. So that is a lot of fun for me to do. I love writing characters. I love it. I absolutely love it. It's so much fun for me to do. You said that the music influences the style of writing and, and you make it actually very clear because there are parts of this book that they're very short, they're very fast paced and you call them scherzos, which I had to look up <laughs> and that's a short, fast paced piece of music. Did you overall, when you, and to, to think about this book, it really does have a kind of a symphonic structure, as little as I know about symphonies. Uh, are there really de deliberate like call-outs to the symphonic structure in the novel itself? 100%. Uh, I was given, not too long ago, I was given great advice, which is write what you know. And I know music, so I, everything is going to be music-centered, music-oriented. Uh, it just makes sense to me uh, a symphonic structure as you mentioned you know and there's an overture there's a middle section there's a climax and then you know there there's the finale and that's how i like to view everything and and i think that's that structure is pretty easy for people to follow it's definitely easy for me to write that way and um i think doing it everything that i write if i write it in that that structure not only is it easy to follow it's you know the consistency is there and and people get it. And I'm, I'm just happy that people are actually getting it and they're digging it. Now, uh, uh, Bernard works for something called the Delaney Foundation. They are the kind of inheritors, it, literally, in fact, the inheritors of Delaney's riches, his the copyrights and everything. And they've created a foundation to help kids do that is that something that you experience is there something out there that happened like that because that seems so realistic that must be some something like that out there is there um there are tons of organizations like the uh, fictionalized delaney foundation there are tons of them 
Um, people just don't really know about them. And uh, I, I wanted to to show the human side of, of Freddie Delaney. Maybe human is not the right word, the compassionate side. Um, just, you know, as as musicians, we all experience things that we, we all go through things that we, where we need help. Everyone needs help. Everyone needs encouragement. And uh, I have gotten a ton of encouragement and support, uh, you know, from different organizations. And I like to contribute and my time and energy and and dollars to organizations that do that for people. And, you know, music is such an incredibly important and powerful force that, you know, it needs to be, it needs to be supplemented. It needs to be given to everyone who actually can't experience it. So I wanted to make the Delaney Foundation. Uh, I just wanted to bring that to the forefront that things like this are out there and they really do exist. And if you don't know about these organizations, go, go, go to your arts council, look up, look up what, what can I do to help contribute to musical fostering for, for school kids and, and young people and anyone who needs it. You know, the world of this book is so convincingly uh, created, the the world uh, of Freddie Delaney. So I'd like you to talk about um, writing about musical academia, and it's really fun, and using that to, to create this kind of mystery, um, because what what you offer at the beginning is that Freddie Delaney is this great classical musician who has this huge back catalog, but his crowning glory is a work called The Five Rings, which is based on the five rings of the 1930s Olympics. And, but unfortunately, one of those movements is left, it's is just almost seems like it was written by a different person. So talk about creating this kind of mystery around the composer himself. Well, I was looking for some aspect that was uniquely American, um, you know, in, in European culture and Asian culture. And, you know, there's there's so much history there. And America is, is a young country. So with, with the Olympics happening, you know, it's it's based on on the five rings of Olympia and the the last ring or the red is symbolizing the Americas. So um, Freddie's greatest composition the last one was supposed to be, uh, you know, the, the 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 United States, America, and um, it just—I uh, don't want to give too much away, but uh, it uh, disappears before the premiere is supposed to happen. And Freddie takes a very long time to recreate this lost masterpiece, you know, and it has been hyped up so much, and the hype is there, and not just in America, but across the world, people are anticipating this thing. And, um, you know, the pressure is on, can he do it? And when he does finally uh, write this piece, rewrite this piece, it's just, it just falls flat. And, you know, that has been in the story. It it uh, has often for, for decades, uh, historians and musicologists have, have speculated on why that was. And, uh, one of the protagonists, Byrne, um, has dedicated his life to figuring out, you know, what actually happened to Freddie that caused this downfall. You know, he go from the best of the best to the app to a joke, you know, and and what happened? What was it that happened? And so when Freddie, uh, excuse me, when when uh, Byrne gets the opportunity to, you know, really dig into the I don't think it's giving anything away, but uh, dig into the long lost score of Red the original score that was supposed to bring Freddie back to his heyday, his glory, he discovers a lot of uh, interesting uh, facts. And and you just have to kind of read to uh, see what happens. You know, one of the things that interested me was the idea of the Delaney Doodles. These are these kind of weird abstract symbols that are found all over his kind of handwritten scores. And for de decades, nobody has been able to decipher them. And I think this is one of the really brilliant things you do in this book is create mysteries around music that are so compelling that they will turn the pages just as fast as bullets and guns, which are in short supply happily in this book. Uh, talk about uh, creating mysteries and, and creating the Delaney doodles. Did you make some up yourself? Well, the the aspect of the Delaney Doodles uh, that was that was fun. That just kind of came to me on a whim. 
Um, I had actually talked to the husband of one of my college professors about annotations or, or doodles, as I call them. And, you know, I'm thinking a couple of squiggles here and there, you know, that'll just, oh, this will represent play this soft and play this loud. And he sent me a ton of just, I it blew my mind, the, the you know, just how in-depth these some of these drawings and 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 doodles as we call them get you know for for pieces of music for to me it actually looks like just scribbles on a page but to the composer it is a masterpiece a masterwork of music and i'm just it was it mind blowing to me it's like this is real people actually do this so i thought that it would be a lot of fun to have um, you know Josephine, another one of the protagonists, I thought it'd be a lot of fun to have her. You know, she's got her own language. She's got some things going on in, in her own world, and um, and her doodles. You know, no one had ever been able to figure them out. People didn't know if it was artwork or if it was based on some ancient language. And you know, it was just that was just Josephine. You know, and and I, I that was a lot of fun to do because it's real and it's and it's accurate. And you know. Um, what looks crazy to us is totally normal to someone else. And that's one of the uh, underlying themes in, in the book. You know, Josephine is such a wonderful character. Oh, my God. And, and <laughs> you, you give kind of, it's a bit coy on the, on the back cover, but I think that uh, you take a page from long ago, I read a book, I remember this, uh, probably 15 or 20 years ago, by a, a fellow, a psychologist named Richard Zytoek, who wrote a book called The Man Who Tasted Shapes, uh, about a, a condition called synesthesia, where people, you know, when they hear something, they taste something, or, or when they hear something, they'll see colors that have to do with it. It's the senses, the sensory of, the sensorium of humans is not always wired exactly the same and so that leads gives you an insight into a different kind of musical experience mm -hmm. absolutely and and i first learned about synesthesia when, when i was in college and one of my favorite composers rimsky korskov uh had that condition synesthesia and it was just fascinating to me i was like wow that is wow i can't even imagine I know how it is for me when I see or hear something that I absolutely love. It's overwhelming. But then to add another layer on top of that, like if I'm hearing something that's amazing and I see all these colors at the same time, I don't know if I would be able to handle that. That's just a, a lot. And in, in terms of Josephine, it's just how she sees the world, you know, and to be able to hear someone walking up the steps and being being able to name each each tone as the the steps progress some people say that's an incredible gift some people say that that's a curse you know and i i think it's just in how you you see it um people say to me is is that a real thing do people really do that and i i absolutely you know i'm, I'm listening to i, I live in washington dc so i hear car horns all the time and you know i a car horn has dual tones. There's two notes playing every time a car blows its horn. And the first thing that I do is, up. Oh, that's a C sharp and an E. Okay, up. Oh, that's a D and an F sharp. It's usually in thirds or fourths. And it, it drives me crazy because I have to know what it is. So I can't imagine what life would be like with someone, uh, for someone with synesthesia. So I thought it would be really fun to explore that aspect. Uh, having a neurodivergent um, main character is really great. And there's a nice reflection going back and forth between the two timelines because you have Bernard and his friend, Ebony, who is not as neurodivergent as Josephine, but it's a good mirror. So talk about, did the creation of each of these characters start to work on and within one another? Um, it was, uh, thank you for mentioning that actually, it was, it was completely unintentional. Um, when, when I came up, I came up with the character of Josephine first and, you know, it's like, okay, this is going to be Josephine. She's, this is her, you know, she's, she's got her own thing going on, but with the character of Ebony, I actually based her on a friend of mine that I used to work with when, when I was in Pennsylvania and she's smart, she's beautiful, she's energetic and just out there and, you know, why not make Ebony a genius? She was absolutely a genius. So the neurodivergency there, it, it worked in the 
some might say in, in her favor, whereas Josephine, some people might say that it worked against her, but I, I don't really see it that way. But I, I, I do appreciate you you realizing the parallels of, of both women uh, having a, a, a sense of neurodivergency. And um, it was really important to me to um, portray Josephine in a positive light uh, as someone living with a neurodivergent condition. Um, I've worked with kids as a school teacher who have lived with autism. My nephew lives with autism. My best friend's brother lives with autism. So I, I really thought that it would be important for me to represent people living with autism in a, in a positive way. I, I thought it was really masterfully done. And to be honest, I was not, it was the last thing I expected. So when I came upon that, it was just like you all of a sudden create a field where wow, this character is really different. And it's so much fun just to discover how she experiences the world and, mm -hmm. and the way she experiences music. Um, using the synesthesia allows you to really explore the idea of you know music as communicating so much more than language can or words can or anything can because it's a direct wire to our emotions. Absolutely. And I think that's the the power that is easily underestimated. Yeah, I agree. Um, a lot of people, you know, sometimes think that music is just for fun. That's one of those things that people just kind of do to relax. And, oh, I'm just going to put on a song and, and just forget about whatever's going on. But um, those of us that are super, super into it, we do get it. It's such a deeper connection. Music is, I, I was told by a, a good friend of mine, music is the only thing that you can go across the world and not speak the language and have an instant connection. And it is, it is so important that, that you know, we, we cultivate music and, and, and not treat it as like it's, it's a hobby. No, it's an important outlet. It really is extremely important. And, and people understand that. And in this story, um, I think the, the relationship between Josephine and Freddie and Byrne and Ebony it all all of them are brought together by that common thread which which is music you know their love for music and and everything that goes along with it so i'm glad that people are seeing that um music is much more than than just a, a hobby or something to do to relax you know um, one of the things that's really fascinating about freddie's world is he's you um you are did an amazing job at setting him up at a time of incredible technological change we had a similar period maybe about 10 years ago when mp3s first came out mm -hmm. and, and really just changed the way everybody accessed music there was there was no going back after the mp3 and similarly a hundred years ago uh, you create this world where before music was recorded or you know often easily played or transported people would sell the music was a business by virtue of sheet music so talk about discovering that was that that was something i had never known and it was really fascinating to see you create that world for us yeah, I, I really wanted accuracy. Um, as a working musician, you know, all of my friends are musicians. And it's like, if, if there's one thing that was off, oh, they're going to let me know about it, you know, so I have to make sure that everything is totally accurate. So I did a ton of research uh, during that time period, the early the early 1900s, um, you know, where where music pluggers had to take the sheet music. Now, they had to be really good musicians, because they had to take the music that, you know, the composers had written, take the music, sit down, learn it, go to a department store, play it so that people would listen to it and say, oh, I want to buy that song. You know, it was, that's how it was. And that is a ton of work. And these people had to be extremely dedicated and extremely talented, you know, to make a living. And, you know, this is before, you know, record player, you know, record players had just come out. And it was like, you know, people weren't doing pressed records of, of recordings of, of songs and everything. So it was totally up to the song plugger to make these pieces of music, you know, available and make people want to buy these pieces of music. And they had to be really good musicians. Everybody had to know how to play the piano and play it well and sight read really well and, and sell that music because that's how they paid the rent. It was really fascinating to learn. Now you create uh, Freddie. He's part of this world. He's a he's a a, a music uh, slugger. He's out there trying to sell these sheets, and, 
And one of the things I think that's really great is that he meets uh, Josephine, and you do a great job of showing how um, popular and commercial and local music, which is the music that they were uh, that was popular in the nightclubs of the you know early twentieth century got woven into what now what we call classical music. And so I think that was a... And, and this was uh, consciously undertaken by people like Dvorak, the golden, das golden Spinrad, <laughs> and, <laughs> and Aaron Copeland. That's who actually, if you want to ask me who, I, who Delaney was based on, my guess was Aaron Copeland. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay, all right. I, I didn't, wouldn't never have thought that, but okay. <laughs> Uh, uh, the, that said, the the process by which our everyday music that we just listen to to get by, to tap our toes to, gets mm-hmm. woven into these greater works, that was a really fascinating um, description of that. And I think, you know, the, the collaboration between uh, Josephine and Freddie, it, at first, is just really, it's beautiful to see that happening at that level. You just do an amazing job of showing how two people with very different understandings of music can still collaborate and come up with something that's better, better than either one of them alone. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and I, that, that's one reason I mentioned earlier that I, I like Freddie. I, he's such a likable guy, you know. I'm not going to give away too much, but I really, truly feel that in his heart, he feels that he is doing everything right for the right reasons. Um, and and like you mentioned, the collaboration between Josephine and Freddie, it is beautiful. Not only the collaborations with music that they do, but their friendship, you know, his kindness towards her, his compassion when when other people are kind of looking down at Josephine, Freddie doesn't, you know, he he gives her a hand up and they genuinely strike up a friendship. And it is my belief that Freddie truly does love Josephine. There is a, 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 a an earnest love there that, you know, it started because of, of their both of their connections to music. And I'm not going to say really what happens or where that love aspect goes. You have to read the book to find out. But you know, I can just say I really like Freddie and I am rooting for him. That's what I can say. Now, one of the things I thought was interesting, and you make a point of mentioning this more than once, so I think it's not a coincidence, is that Josephine really likes to cook and likes mm-hmm. to cook for Freddie. And, and I couldn't help but sense that that was like, you know, another creative outlet for her where she does a performance of cooking for an audience of one and he appreciates that and that kind of feedback loop is similar to the music feedback loop yes absolutely you know what josephine doesn't feel like she can do a great deal for freddie with the exception of their the music that they share so you know she she likes to cook and he likes to eat and he likes her company and it what better gift and to share, you know, food is is always a uniter in every situation. So it's like Josephine is doing what she can for Freddie. Not only does he enjoy it, but she enjoys doing it for him. And, you know, she makes sure that when she does cook for him, it's 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 beautifully presented and she makes sure that it's everything that he likes. And it's just a, a beautiful friendship, a beautiful relationship that they share. And going back to this um, music scene, I loved uh, Dip Mars. <laughs> uh, so, so talk about creating this whole, this business because the boss, everybody, it reminded me a bit of uh, the newspaper in Spider Man. <laughs> exactly, Jay Jonah Jameson. Yeah, totally. I, I have to say, uh, Dittmar was actually based on <laughs> J- Jonah Jameson when I was writing his character. That's who I saw. You know, I see this gruff guy. You know, a, a very small mustache with a cigar sticking out of his mouth, him just chomping at the bit, wanting to smoke it, but really can't. Um, just this, you know, hardcore. He knows everything. He's really a softy on the inside, but, you know, he's got to be tough. And it, it just it just seemed to me like, you know, I, I didn't know a great deal about the 1920s, but it just seemed to me that that was the the atmosphere and, and the attitude that that a boss would need to have for someone who was, you know, struggling to keep a business afloat and 
and you know employ people and, and make sure that everything was running the way that it was supposed to just no nonsense and he was a lot of fun to write and and i i really enjoyed creating his character and and also in the 1920s it was a, a time of great technological change and I think it's interesting too for us here in our own high tech heaven, where change just gets dumped on us. You know, like oh, was every eighteen months? That's the the <laughs> the, the uh, Grove equation. So uh, talk about uh, creating the technological environment of the of the time Freddie's time and those changes in that curve and. Freddie is smart. Yeah, Freddie's he's he's I, he is smart, but I don't think he's as smart as he thinks he is, <laughs> or he's not. He's almost there, but not quite. Um, and the technological aspects, you know, it's so different, so different. Um, you know, from the from the past to the present. Um, I I think in the in the past everything was was cutting edge. You know, there there's a scene where. A phonograph comes into uh in, into the picture and it's like you know they had choices of what kind of phonographs to get and this is the latest model and you know how are we going to print this music and you know is it on a printing print how long is this going to take and whereas in in the present it's like um you know ebony is the computer genius and she's doing things that it would take you know 10 minutes to do via computer whereas it would take 10 hours to do by hand and you know, I, th those parallels were a lot of fun to do, and they actually kept me in line. It's like, okay, so I need to, every time something happened in the past, I really had to make sure that it was either one up in the future or right next to it. So it, it, it kept me on my toes, making sure that everything was um, was up to date and, and, and the parallels worked with each other. You know, that's one of the things, in terms of the interleaving the plots, you, you did a great job. Did you end up at, like, Write whole long sequences of in set in either period and then split them apart, or did you like write them interleaved? Wow, with this one, I actually I, I started everything was with Freddie. I started Freddie and Josephine, uh, and then I went back and did uh, a lot of Burn and Ebony, and then as they kind of. After I'd written Freddie up to a certain point, I started writing writing Burn and um, uh, Burn and Ebony, and then you know I caught them up, and then it was interchangeable. Back then, it was okay. I'm going to do this Freddie chapter. Okay, it's now it's time for a Burn chapter, and then I would I would uh, go back and forth after I had written a little bit of uh, both both characters. Now, th this book does have some some bad guys, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, for, you know, for me, you know, the, the one of the biggest bad guys gets introduced early, which is a non-disclosure agreement. <laughs> so talk about, you know, the the kind of uh, the intersection of legalese and the creative world uh, and how you can use that to create tension that's just just as effective as you know, holding people hostage in a bank or whatever you might see in uh, an a ordinary thriller. Yeah, um, with with the uh, the non disclosure agreement, you know, it seems innocent in the beginning, but it really it holds a lot of sway, and it's one of those things you think, okay, I'm just doing some research about music. You know, it's not that big a deal. What could I possibly not be allowed to talk about? You, you, you think that things are innocuous, you know, just because it's like, okay, this is just standard. Um, but it, in, in the end, that uh, non-disclosure totally holds, you know, a couple of characters hostage. And um, it, it truly does. It literally holds them hostage. And um, I, I think it's important to to have that tension. Uh, you know, to me, a, a thriller is not a thriller without that, that you know, just immense amount of uh, tension. And uh, one of my favorite parts about it is, is the way that Ebony um, decides she's going to deal with that uh, non-disclosure agreement. And, you know, it's just a, a testament to her personality. So, I, again, she was one of my favorite characters to write just because, of, you know, when people read it, they will understand, you know, her her take on uh, the non-disclosure agreement. You know, also going back to uh, uh, Freddie, I, I really loved it at the beginning how nice it really 
makes is important. You do a great job of creating how nice he is to Josephine and how even-handed he is. And, and But still, even so, as nice as he is, as much as you like him, you eventually realize that, you know, the society at that time was immensely and openly and alarmingly racist. And so even the nicest guy could only do so much. And I think... But what's interesting is, as you read it, you think, well, he's a nice guy, and he's just doing what he can. And then after a while, you think, oh, my God, this is an awful play. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought you did a good job of handling those kind of issues in a realistic sense where you could see that likable characters might ha- end up doing things that are that would just be fair boat now and with good reason. Yeah. Um, and, and that was important for me to explore because, you know, people it's, 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 it was society at the time. That's how it was. And sometimes we forget, you know, we're, we're in an age where everyone is offended by everything and it's just, okay, you guys, we have to understand we have come so far. This is how it was. That was a hundred percent accurate. The scenes with, you know, Freddie and Josephine in the twenties. That's how it was. And it would be unimaginable for us to think about something like that happening today. What do you mean I can't walk into this place because of the color of my skin? What do you mean I can't bring someone with me because they're not the same race that I am? You know, that that is just unfathomable. But that's how it was. And I think it's really important that we not only understand that, you know, this is truly how it was, but we, I don't want to say embrace, but we 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 have to we can't shy away from it just because it's painful or just because it is, uh, you know, uncomfortable. We can't shy away from it. Um, you know, history, we're doomed to repeat it unless we study it. So it's one of those things where I wanted a sense of accuracy, no matter how uncomfortable it might be for people. Um, to me, it's very, very important that we know our history um, and we can definitely learn from it. You know, People say this country is this and this country is that, uh, you know, my take on it is we have come such a long way. Do we have a long way to go? Absolutely. We're a very young country, but we've we've come a long, long way. And, uh, you know, it's really important for us to remember how things used to be. You know, too, uh, uh, to counterbalance that, on the other hand, uh, uh, Bernard at some point has a run in with uh, you know New York's finest, not at their finest moment, and you, and and I read that I just thought, oh my god! <laughs> so I thought you do, as you say, you did a really good job of presenting a balanced balanced view of reality as it is. We might wish to change that we reality, but we have to. Uh, understand what is real in this world and act accordingly based on what is real absolutely absolutely thank you so much for saying that a hundred percent um and you know it's 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 all based on my perception this is my perception you know for other people that's not how it is but for other people that's exactly how it is and i think it's important like you mentioned to 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 have a balanced view and um you know and and everything that i write i'm always going to do it from my perspective so people who don't look like me and don't have my experiences they can get a glimpse into what life is like you know for for someone who looks like me um and i i hope that comes across in a non-threatening way i i I think so and i think you do capture uh, another universal reality which is that all that stands between Civilization and complete anarchy are toilet paper and coffee. <laughs> I'm so glad you got that. That was great. Yeah, that uh, that was a lot of fun. That that scene, <laughs> toilet paper and coffee. That was fun because especially I don't drink coffee, so I was like, all right, you know, uh, it can't just be about the toilet paper. But um, and and once you guys read it, you will totally understand. It'll make a lot of sense. And and Rick is not going to just uh, look at me like I'm crazy because I'm laughing about uh, toilet paper and coffee. It'll make sense. I promise. You know, um, what you are a musician yourself. You played in symphony orchestras and you have your own band. And I'd like to talk about, you know, how much uh, 
when you're playing a symphony orchestra, you're playing somebody else's notes written on paper, and, and they pretty much expect you to play them as written, yet also provide all the art that you would bring to your own creations, written only for you by you, played in the moment. So I like to talk about managing that kind of uh, reality. Well, for me, every time I play someone else's music, you know, I, I can play the same piece a hundred times. You know, one of my favorite composers is Borjak. And when I play his, his music, um, you know, you mentioned the golden spinning wheel. Uh, I've never played that one. I like listening to it. Um, I, I, every time I play a piece of his music, even if I played it a dozen times, I get something different every single time. Each interpretation is different. You know, maybe it's because of the weather or maybe it's because of the time of day or who the conductor is or the people that I'm playing with. You know, you you get something different and exciting and new every single time. So that's always a lot of fun for me. And, and with the music that I write, when I write songs, you know, it's one way in my head. And for the guys in the band, when they play it, it rare, and I'm not saying this in a bad way, it rarely sounds the way that it does in my head. And and sometimes I get bent out of shape about that. I'm just like, you know, can you play it the way I wrote it? I would love to hear it that way. And they're like, well, you know, it sounds better this way. Okay, well, I can't tell you how to play. I can tell you how to play it, but, you know, it's going to be up to you to do it. So it, it's, it's always fun knowing that you're going to get something different every single time you play something, even if you've played it a hundred times. I don't think I've ever played the same piece the same way twice ever. And that's one of the the, the joys of, of being a musician and, and knowing how to appreciate music. It's such a wonderful gift. You know, one of the things overall, as I read this book, as I thought it was a masterful piece of work in terms of presenting something that is super thrilling and exciting to read, a page turner, no doubt, doesn't feel lightweight, doesn't gloss over the, you know, there's no gunplay. I mean, I, I'm I'm an old man. I've never been involved in gunplay. I, 99% of the TV I watch and much of the fiction I read involves gunplay. I don't know why, but it's <laughs> exciting. I hope not to be involved in it. But uh, I think you do a great job of providing a book that's really Easy to read and fun to read, great characters, but also speaks directly and truthfully to many of the things that bedevil the, the nation at the moment. So you get get offer the reader all the joys of a reading experience, something that's fun and light and easy to read, but also something that you walk away with thinking about. And I think that that's a difficult, that's a really tough knot to tie. So talk about. Uh, making it and also too, um, stick the landing, man, 100%. <laughs> well, thank you very much for those kind words. I, I appreciate it. Uh, I, I got to digress just a, a, a tiny bit. When I first wrote uh, Symphony of Secrets, and I, I, I think I wrote it in 2021, I believe. Um, I got to say, I absolutely hated it. I hated every word of it. I was so disappointed in myself and i just felt like i had let everyone down because my 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 first novel the violin conspiracy was you know it, people really enjoyed it and it was a specific kind of book and i felt like people were expecting you know the violin conspiracy too and i just didn't know what to expect and plus every experienced author that i had spoken with was like you know the second book, that sophomore novel, it's always just going to be a thorn in your side. And, you know, I had already had all of these things working against me when I wrote it. So I felt like the pressure was really, really on. And um, I don't feel like uh, I, I truly felt like I let so many people down. But then I came back to it uh, right after I turned it in uh, for edits. And my editor gave me some incredible feedback and I read it again and I couldn't believe, I mean, this was after like five or six months and I could not believe how much I enjoyed reading it after stepping away from it for, for so long. I was like, whoa, I am loving this book. And I, I want people to be entertained. I'm a teacher by heart. You know, I've been a teacher in the classroom for 25 years. That's, that's my passion. 
I always want people to be able to come away with something. If it's an entertainment value, if it's a life lesson, something, I want them to be able to say, hmm, I got something out of that. So that's always in the back of my mind when, when I'm writing something. I, I, I want to leave people with something, entertainment value, a lesson, something, anything. Now, um, one of the things that this book made me think of obviously seems super designed to, to, to be a movie. And <laughs> I imagine your first book is as well. So have the, has that happened? And I mean, this is a really wonderful environment for books to be developed into movies because no longer do you have to take a 400-page novel and cram it into an hour and 20 minutes of screen time, which is means you're not going to get the novel. So talk about, uh, you know, how does this look? How, how do these two books look as movies? Well, um, The Violin Conspiracy was actually optioned by, by Sony Entertainment. And uh, whether they do something with it, you know, my fingers are crossed. You know, they, they, they want to make a, a limited series out of it. And I hope it comes to the, the big or the small screen. I really do because I, I love that story. Um, and with Symphony of Secrets, I can totally see this uh, as as uh, being a movie. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that the interest is there um, because it comes out on April 18th. You know, I haven't heard too much yet, but if anyone asks me who is going to play Freddy, absolutely. I, I know I, I had this person in mind as I was writing the character of Freddy. Who? Who? <laughs> Tell me. That would be, drumroll, Ryan Gosling. Ryan Gosling is Freddie Delaney. I can see it. That would be perfect. Yeah. You know, yeah. now, as a, as a writer and a musician, you know, your world is like really dominated by art and expressing yourself. And that carries over into your work as a teacher. And I think that one of the things about this book is that it really speaks to is the import of art in our lives, that it's much more than a pastime, as you said, a hobby or a diversion. It's something that directly affects us emotionally and our lives are led we are led about by our emotions as much as we might want to think otherwise absolutely uh, we are emotional creatures we really are and and you know that that self-expression aspect that you mentioned i'm so glad you said that you call self-expression i call it self-expression other people just say you're just kind of out there and i'm like well no it's not i know this everything makes sense to me this is how i i I view the world. This is how I navigate things. It works for me. And, and that's totally okay. It doesn't have to, it's not one size fits all. It never has been that way. I don't know anything that works, you know, one size fits all. Nothing works that way. Um, and, and it is so important. It's such an important outlet. You know, not everyone is, is on track to be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer you know, we need poets, we need writers, we need painters, we need sculptors, we need, you know, just everything, anything that will allow for someone to have a creative outlet, it is absolutely necessary. It's 100% necessary. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really scary to me that, you know, people are, are beginning to shy away from that uh, aspect of education. You know, it's not important. You got to get your math and your science. While math and science is important, Arts are just as important. Arts are just as important. And I, I truly hope that because of, you know, books like this, people will will realize, you know, wow, I, I had no idea that this is what it's like for a musician, for someone who really is engaged in the arts. This is how it is for them. Yes. And it truly is important. I want people to realize that it's more than just a hobby. It's a way of life. As a teacher, I'm wondering if, what you write and the way you write and your writing process informs the way you teach or if it's the other way around, if the way you if you the way you write is informed by the way you teach. I think it depends on the day. That's a good question. I've been asked that uh, several times and and it depends on the day what what the answer is. Sometimes my 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 teaching philosophy is influenced by my writing and 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 vice versa. Um, I consider myself a teacher who happens to write, you know, and 
I'm 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 an observer. You know, people will sometimes say, "Wow, Brendan, you're 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 kind of quiet and standoffish." No, I'm just soaking everything in. I'm soaking in your personality. I'm soaking in the environment. I'm soaking every single aspect in. And that informs the way that I do things. I'm going to interact with you based on how I, I, I see you interacting with your surroundings. And I can't do that unless I soak it in. And in my writing, you know, I want every single, I want everything, everything to be involved and to be mentioned and to let the people who think the most minuscule thing is unimportant know every single aspect is important. And I want to display that. I want to put it on display in my writing. You know, when, it, when I was in my uh, teaching high school, every single day, I would shake hands with all of my students as they walked out the door, just to acknowledge them, to let them know that they were important. And I had about a hundred different handshakes that I had to do because it wasn't just, you know, grab the hand and shake it. Each kid had a distinct personality. So you know, that's, that is important. It's really important to put things like that on display and to let people know that, that they are important. You know, you speak to something that I think is really central to all forms of art, which is that all artists are naturally eavesdroppers or music <laughs> samplers. <laughs> That's true. That's very true. Are tracing the lines of another artist. <laughs> you know, we, we call that borrowing. Borrowing. <laughs> yeah. So. I think that that's a really interesting vision of art that isn't often observed, but is really important to the fun of it. I mean, it's fun just listening to going out to a restaurant and sitting alone and listening to what everybody else is saying. Oh, my God, you can learn so much. True. Very true. Not only about the people that you're listening to, but about the places that they live, the people that they interact with, you know, just everything um, and I never thought of it that way, us being eavesdroppers. And I, that's, you're absolutely right. It's just being able to not only be willing to, to soak everything in, but able to do it as well. You know, it, it takes a certain degree of, of patience to be able to sit and listen and admire and, and dissect and, and, and just what and interpret just everything. And I, I truly believe that it's a gift. You know, I, I think that patience is one of those uh, virtues that are, it's lost on way too many people. People are in such a hurry to get from one thing to the next. Just take your time and listen. Listen to the people around you. Listen to your environment. Look at the people. Look at what's going on around you. And, you know, you, you would be amazed at what you would learn. Just take a moment and, and listen. The new novel by Brendan Slocum is Symphony of Secrets. It's no secret. This is a great novel. Thank you for joining me, Brendan. This has been a delight. The pleasure is mine. Thank you, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.